Ben Colquitt. No, I'm kidding. Uh, can't, we, um, can't be heard, but here I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, many of you have heard me talk about Kurt before, and uh, the joke is that he's an imaginary friend that I have, right? But yeah. now he's actually real, and he's standing in front of you. But it's funny, yesterday when we were sitting t- chatting to each other, one person thought they saw two Pete's up the front. So I'm like, p- potentially I'm your alter ego. Well, that, that would be the second one. <laughs> There's another Pete here. Oh, is there? Yeah. Anyway, uh, how long have we known each other? Um, I think we made contact with each other in 2011. Wow, that's a while ago. 11 yeah. years, yeah. So what, what were you doing then? What have you done since? I was, uh, at that point, I was pastoring a church in Sydney. I was passionate about biblical counselling. I decided to start a website and call myself Biblical Counselling Australia when it was me and one other bloke. But it made it sound big, like with this massive thing. Pete saw the website. He connected with me. We had, went on Zoom. And we... can, I, can I jump in? Yeah, you go. I was all excited when I saw the website. <laughs> And I thought, there's all these people that are doing yeah, this yeah. stuff. And then I realised it was a technological equivalent yeah, of two right. men and a dog. That's what you get. There's two men and a website. The view of the website, you can yeah, make yeah. yourself look much bigger than you actually are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it got you. It did. It did. Got you. Anyway, so we've been mates ever since. Uh, our, our relationship was really formed when we did two weeks of training over in Philadelphia together. Uh, and we, we shared smells and all sorts of things. Oh, we? hang on. <laughs> Kurt shared smells. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We stayed in uh, hostel accommodation. Hostel there. accommodation. That was my first experience. Bunk beds together. And I've never done it since. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, what, what are you doing now? Like what's in terms of... Uh, and, and tell us about your family too. Yeah, family. Married to Kelly. Have three kids. Um, eight, Caleb, 18. Uh, Elijah, who's 15. And Grace, who's 12. Um, I'm no longer pastoring the church in Sydney. I've been in pastoral ministry for 18 years in Anglican Church in Sydney. Um, but I finished up that this year. Um, one of the reasons that happened was five years ago, I got diagnosed with early onset Parkinson's disease. And so uh, the last five years has been a bit of a transition from thinking the Lord was taking me in this direction and then skewing this direction. Um, but in some senses, he has, uh, he's taken me where he's always wanted to take me. Uh, when I got called into ministry, the vision God gave me uh, was to uh, have his heart for his people and function as a pastor, a pastor. And so now my role is in pastoral supervision. So in some senses, I pastor the pastors. So I meet with 48 different people from across Australia, mostly via Zoom, uh, to catch up with them close to once a month to find out how they're going and encourage them as pastors of their churches or chaplains in hospitals or staff workers in universities. Uh, I work with Christian ministers to keep them going in the gospel. Yeah. And even, well, I'll just say this, even though we're friends... I've been the beneficiary of uh, Kurt's pastoring of pastors. You've, and, got, you've uh, got it for free, haven't you? Yeah, I'm not paying for it. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to start charging you, mate. But so you, I, you, I just... You, you I'm trying to be serious here. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Could you just give me a sec? I knew where you were going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I, I just want to say to you, Kurt, even though he hasn't been here and he's never preached to you before, he's made a huge contribution to this church through me, through helping me. Um, because there's been lots of times where I've needed uh, help, and you can you can affirm that, right? Yeah. And um, and uh, he's just been really really helpful. So uh, he's blessed you, even though you don't even know him. I just wanted to say that. Is there, what else did you want? Did you want to say anything else about that? No, nah, I mean I'm so excited to be here because I like I do feel like I've done, gone on the journey with you the last 11 years yeah. through this church, and so 
to actually be amongst you this morning, isn't it? Just an incredible privilege because I feel like I feel like I've been here without being here. Um, so that's just it's exciting. It's exciting to see the growth of the church. Even yesterday, when we were meeting people, and I was meeting person after person, and telling me how blessed they are to be coming to this church, um, how new they are to the Lord. Like just praise Him, praise Him. It's exciting. Yeah, and look, man, it's a thrill for me, honestly, to uh, to give you the lectern. And uh, you can you can trust this guy, and so uh, you just want to sit under his teaching and, and what he's got to share with you from the Lord today. And um, yeah, God uh, God blesses people through him. So uh, I'm I'm going to pray for him, and uh, I'll just I'll pray for the kids as well, and then uh, the kids can go out, and you guys can just say good day to each other, and then he'll uh, call you to order, and um, and and start preaching. All good? Would you mind standing with me as we do this? Let's pray. God, it's amazing that, um, that you would be pleased to do uh, your majestic, sweet work through earthen vessels, through, uh, through weak people, through uh, fallen um, humans, that, that you wouldn't turn your back on humanity and, and walk away. Um, the first time we turned is, is uh, nothing short of stunning. Uh, it's incredible. Um, and then that you would do all this work to make us clean and, and, and new again and fresh and, and, and uh, to restore us is amazing. But then you even go further than that and you say, I'll, I'll give you uh, my spirit and I'll give you gifts to, uh, to make me plain to people. And uh, God, I just thank you for all of the gifts that you've given everyone who loves you and um, that they get to, to use those gifts and, and, and to, uh, to serve you and make you plain. And I thank you for uh, those who are going to be teaching uh, kids this morning uh, downstairs. And uh, I just uh, pray that you'd help them to trust in you and lean upon you and be inspired by you um, to say lots of good things today. And uh, pray for Kurt today, especially after um, conference, becoming a conference this weekend, that you just uh, re-energize him and refresh him and, and uh, put a fire in his belly um, of uh, all the things that you want him to say today. Amen. Now, my brief today is to look at John's Gospel, which apparently you've been doing in church, um, which is... Uh, it's challenging because I haven't sat under the preaching. I don't even know what, how you've been going through, John. Uh, and so sometimes it's hard to jump into a series when you haven't been with the church uh, and you don't feel like you've gone through the journey with them. Um, so anyway, I'll do my best uh, to see what God's Word has to say to us and uh, that we might be all blessed this morning. So I'm going to read the Scriptures. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to hit it. So let me, let me read the Scriptures first. It says, we're looking at John chapter 12. Uh, this is Palm Sunday, Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Uh, the next day, the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. 
So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Father, your word is a powerful sword. And uh, we're excited to sit under it this morning. We're, we're expectant, we're attentive to what you have to say because we know that your word has the power to change and transform our lives. And so we come submitting ourselves to you this morning, ready to hear what you want to say, that we might be changed people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a number of years ago, um, I started a, a PhD, which was really, really exciting at the time. I was going to do my PhD, um, but it was cut short by my Parkinson's. So I only got two, two years of six years into it. So I tell people I've done a third of a PhD, which doesn't really count. Doesn't, it doesn't count for anything. You don't get a book out of it like Pete got out of his. Um, my topic was the lived experience of Christian transformation. The lived experience of Christian transformation. And one of the reasons for pursuing the research was an observation made by some economists named Pine and Gilmore, um, who, who, thought that, who made the statement that in the West, we live in what they call a transformation economy. Uh, that the products and services that we buy and sell and consume are no longer sold and, and valued based on, uh, based on the promise of things like hunger, the fact that they fulfill just hunger, but they're sold to us based on the opportunity for life transformation. And so I'll give you an example with copy. Um, back in an agrarian society, a farming economy, you bought copy as a commodity. Uh, that, that's the unprocessed coffee bean from the field. Then with the Industrial Revolution, they thought, well, we can process that and we can sell it en masse. And so then it, 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 coffee beans get um, roasted and grinded and then they're worth more. And then they go from, from a commodity to a good. Uh, then you move into what's called the service economy, uh, where you take the same coffee beans that have been roasted, you put them in a shop and you serve them to customers. And again, you can charge more for that coffee. But then as, as our world has developed, we move not just from selling coffee in a coffee shop, but to making our coffee shops these experiences where there's music and Wi-Fi and you go in and enjoy the place. And that's what you call an experience economy. But then you go one step further and you have something like Seattle-based bulletproof copy, which claims to have the power to biohack you to a happier, smarter, better rested state of being. You see, you start with the coffee bean in the field and you end up with something that can transform your life. It's part of the transformation economy. We don't just buy goods and services or even experience even anymore. We buy products and services that can transform our lives. And so you have to eat this, you have to drink this, you have to go to this place, you need to take this supplement, you need to invest in this product, you need to follow this, you need to get this app, listen to this podcast, follow this coach, and you can have your life transformed. We become... Each of the products and people we pursue become effectively powerful saviors that give us a chance for deliverance. And although uh, the offer of transformative goods and services may be more in recent history, political and religious and religions have been actually offering transformation for millennia. It's just that the coffee has just caught up. See, in the time of Jesus, there wasn't bulletproof coffee. But salvation was thought to have come or will come through politics and religion. 
And this morning, as we enter into John's world, into Jesus' world, into John's gospel, uh, we see this, this offer of salvation or the promise or the desire for salvation through politics and religion. Uh, John, a disciple and close friend of Jesus, gives us an account of his life. And so we are jumping into the story, I'm jumping in with you, into the story halfway through the book in the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, Jesus, as you know, has just demonstrated this incredible miracle by bringing Lazarus back from the dead, his friend Lazarus back from the dead after three days. It's this extraordinary display of unmatched power. And so as a consequence, we find that people, having recognized he's done this incredible miracle, go out and witness and tell people about him. And so some people have actually gone into Jerusalem where Passover was about to start and there's lots of people there. And they've told them that Jesus was this incredible miracle worker who'd brought Lazarus back from the dead. And so some people, we see at the beginning of chapter 12, come from Jerusalem to check it out. And so they, they come to Jesus and Lazarus where they're having a meal and remember Mary comes. But they, they arrive there to kind of get some proof that Lazarus really did come back from the dead, that Jesus was this amazing miracle worker. And now as Jesus, after that meal with Lazarus, approaches Jerusalem, we find the people coming out to meet him and they want, this is what they want, a powerful political saviour to bring war. They want transformation and they think Jesus is going to bring it. But it's a little bit different to the transformation Jesus actually wants to bring. So they want a powerful political saviour to bring war. It's going to be up on the screen. And so we're looking at verse 12. It says this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, the people come to greet this powerful miracle worker. Why are they doing it? Well, in order to understand it, you kind of need to understand the history of, of the Jewish people, their political and religious history. So if you look at the history of the Jewish people, particularly from after they entered into the land, um, they had effectively become a political football for the ancient powers of the Near East. And so they were, they were removed from the land, they were brought back to the land, they were oppressed by a whole bunch of nations who came in, but they get tossed around by those different uh, empires that appeared at the time. And as a consequence, they'd lived under oppression, they, were, they felt... Uh, and they were longing for liberation. Liberation as a political people, liberation to have their own country, liberation to be their own. They longed for a saviour. And at the same time as being kicked around by political, as a political football, they had the promise in the scriptures that long from long ago that God would send a promised Messiah or king to bring about that liberation. And it meant... During Jesus' time, as they suffered Roman oppression, they thought to themselves, Jesus might be that king. Jesus might be that promised king from David's line who would liberate the Jewish people. So verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now, the use of palm branches is interesting. They, they did use palm branches in their festivals, but just not this one. Uh, they used it at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is called the Feast of Passover. And so why the palm branches here? Well, the most likely reason is that 200 years earlier before Jesus, they, uh, they, the palm branch had become kind of a symbolic, vic uh, a symbolic a symbol of victory in war. Uh, two centuries before Jewish, Jesus, the Jewish people were under not the Roman oppression, but Syrian control in Jerusalem. Uh, but what happened back then was they pulled off this incredible victory 
up, an uprising in Jerusalem, and they removed the Syrians from Jerusalem through a man named Simon Maccabee and his, and his army. And so what Simon Maccabee did, he drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem, and, and, and when he came back as victor after driving them back, as he came back into the city, what did they hold? They held palm branches. So this was a symbol of political victory. We've won, we've won, we've won, we're celebrating. Now, so Jesus rocks up to town. They're thinking he is this great political deliverer. What do they do? They pull out the palm branches. Our liberator is here. He's going to give us the victory from our oppressing Romans. Keep reading verse 13. Crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, Hosanna, you've heard it in songs. It's a praise word, but it means, they think it means, save us now. Save us now. In fact, the people here are quoting Psalm 118.25, which says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, this psalm the Jewish people understood was to be a psalm that spoke of the Messiah and the time of celebration when he would come. And so the people are rejoicing as he comes into the city with palm branches and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, because they believe Jesus is that promised king of old who had come to liberate them politically from the Romans, and he was going to do it through war. He was a, a, a warrior, a powerful king warrior, they believed, the one who provided political liberation. See, so as we read the scriptures, there are lots of reasons, and as you've gone through John's Gospel, you will have noticed there's lots of reasons people come to Jesus. Uh, some want healing, some want wisdom, some want political control, and they think they might be able to get him on their side to get it. Some want adjudication on crazy issues in their family, and you think, why are you even talking to Jesus about that stuff? But in the end, they come to Jesus because they think he's powerful and they need something from him. They want his power and I think the reality is that's part of the human condition, isn't it? We all have this desire for something better. A better life, a better family, a better career, a better place to live, a better purpose. And so some people choose powerful saviours like bulletproof coffee. And others come to Jesus to deliver them from whatever battle they find themselves in. They want him to fight their wars for them. And so perhaps that's why you're in this church today. You brocked up at this church this morning because you, there's something you need saving from. Whether it's a bad relationship, financial problems, family breakdown, long-term illness, grief and loss. You're experiencing, in a sense, in a metaphorical sense, death in your life and you need the powerful Jesus to resurrect your life. And so you're crying out, Hosanna, save now, save me now. Like the people back then, you want a powerful saviour to deliver you from the things you think are your greatest battle. The people want a powerful political liberator to save them through war. But what they get is a humble saviour who brings peace. So keep reading verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, 
If you were imagining a great political liberator coming into the city to, to declare war against the Romans with all these Roman armies, the idea of that would be that you would come on a war horse, wouldn't you? Like a strong beast that was aimed to intimidate with armies. But Jesus comes into the city on a donkey, which was a, a common farm animal. It was used for travel. Priests would use it to go into towns. It was, well, it was an animal that had connotations not of war, but of peace. And so you imagine the confusion of the people as he rocks up, as he comes into the city on this donkey. It would be like, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like, but uh, it would be like a ticker tape parade where all these heroic athletes from the Olympics, like when they bring them back and they put them right through the city and as they go to down the main street, instead of being in these incredible cars, and they're actually on these little tricycles and they're riding along. It'd be so confusing because it just it doesn't fit. They wanted a powerful warrior king on a war horse, but they got a humble, gentle king on a donkey. Keep reading, verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they'd heard that he'd performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So even though the donkey is surprising, it appears that people still are they're excited about what he did with Lazarus. The donkey doesn't really put them off, I don't think. The religious leaders, on the other hand, they're actually threatened by the idea of Jesus' political influence and they express concern and later we're going to find out they want to kill him. And so if we step back and consider that scene that day, you have two groups, don't you? You have the crowd and the Pharisees. Um, two groups that actually really want the same thing. They want the same type of salvation. They want political liberation. Uh, the crowd celebrate, thinking it's him. The religious leaders are threatened by it. But both of them think the salvation they need is political liberation. And yet, a few days later, the Pharisees will plot to kill him. And these two groups that initially celebrate and are concerned, come into one as the Pharisees plot to kill him. And this same crowd, during his trial, call for his execution. They go from celebrating with palm branches, thinking he's the liberator, to calling out for his crucifixion. And who do they want to replace him? Well, we find out it's the man named Barabbas. Now, what was Barabbas's backstory? Well, Barabbas was like Simon the Maccabean, wasn't he? Simon the Maccabean, he... he, he, he he caused a revolt in Jerusalem and managed to get rid of the Syrian oppressors, whereas Barabbas, we know his story, he was an insurrectionist, so likewise he did the same thing. He tried to cause an uprising in Jerusalem, but it was quashed by the Romans and then he was put in jail. And so the people at Jesus' trial, they choose the political liberator over Jesus because that's what they wanted. Jesus is the gentle saviour who comes in peace, but they didn't want a bar of him so what went wrong what were what did they miss about jesus well do you ever get confused sometimes when you read the scriptures and you think you were the jewish people right you had all these prophecies about the messiah that you actually understood to be about the messiah and yet you still missed him see there's only one passage that the crowd speaks that day that's psalm 118 
but, in, but another passage was fulfilled on that day. And so Jesus riding a donkey wasn't just some random thing that he chose. It was to fulfill scripture as it was said in Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. See, why did the people on that day celebrate with Psalm 118 and completely forget or ignore Zechariah 9.9? It's because here's the deal. We want the salvation we want. We don't want the salvation we need. We want the salvation we want on our terms. We don't want the salvation we actually need. People had completely ignored the scriptures they loved because they wanted a saviour they wanted. They wanted one who would bring political liberation. They wanted a saviour who would provide the salvation they wanted. I mean, perhaps that's your experience with the Christian faith. Or maybe you know others with that story. You, you come to Jesus thinking he's going to fight your battles, deliver you from the bad stuff in your life, but he's let you down. He's not fixed your life problems. And you've thought to yourself, what good is it following Jesus? I know that. I, I know that I've been there. Um, a, a couple of years ago, after I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, um, one of the things that happened to me is I started getting really, really fearful that I wasn't going to be able to financially support my family in the future. And so as a consequence, I thought to myself, I've only got a short amount of time now, so I've got to start taking riskier and riskier investment opportunities. And so I did that. I started investing in a whole bunch of stuff. And at first, it seemed to be paying off. Um, but after a while, it actually went pear-shaped, and I lost a lot of money. And I uh, had a bunch of shame before my wife, and it took me ages to tell her. But as I shared eventually with her with tears, what came out of my gut, my unfiltered heart, was this. It's just not fair. I've worked for Jesus for years as a minister. He owes me something better. Now, when it came out, I was shocked. Because what I was saying was, Jesus, you're not giving me the salvation I want. I want to be saved from financial worries. I'm not happy with the salvation you provide. See, the crowd and the Pharisees didn't understand the salvation they're bringing. They wanted the salvation they wanted, not the salvation they needed. But that wasn't just a problem for the crowd and the Pharisees. We find it was a problem for the disciples as well. So verse 16, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. That is when they happened. The whole donkey thing. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Even the guys who hung out with him for three years had heard all his teaching that he had to say, heard all the things he said about what he'd come to do. Like the crowd, they thought he was still the political liberator because that was the salvation they wanted. But it says here, when Jesus was glorified, glorified, they got it. Now, what does that mean? When was Jesus glorified? We actually only have to go forward 
to verse 23 of chapter 12, and Jesus explains that. So verse 23 of chapter 12, it says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's Jesus talking about there? He's talking about his death on a cross. The cross in John's gospel is the glorification of Jesus, the glorification of God. And so what this is saying, what John is saying as he, as he looks back, is he's saying the disciples got the salvation that Jesus was bringing when the disciples understood the cross. That, that we don't have just a problem of, a salva- of an enemy out there that we need saving from through war, but the real salvation we need is from an enemy within. Our real problem is that we need peace. We need a peacemaker to bring us, to restore us to God. See, the reason we live in a transformation economy is not because people have come up with things like bulletproof coffee. (laughs) We're able to transform our lives. It's because the heart of every human, every one of us, has this instinctive desire to want to replace the true God with ourselves. To have his power, to have his wisdom, to have his comfort, to have his pleasure, to have his place. And we will follow anything that offers us that chance to have God-like power over this world. And when we do that, when we replace him to assert ourselves in his place, we set ourselves up as enemies of him. Mini-gods living in divines of the true God. And so the problem is not out there, the baddies out there, the political people who oppress us. The real problem for every single one of us is in here. It's in us. And so if Jesus was to be the political liberator that they wanted to come and defeat the enemies of God, then the problem, well, the problem would have been all of them. (laughs) He wouldn't have been marching in with a horse to destroy the Romans. He would have been taking everyone out. Every person who through their unconscious most of the time, let's say it unconscious, attempt to replace God with themselves have made themselves an enemy of God, whether passively through just ignoring him and acting like he's dead, giving him the divine silent treatment, or actively, like the religious leaders, by trying to have him killed. They didn't need a political saviour to save them. They needed a humble saviour to bring peace between them and God. And so did we. We need Jesus who through his death on a cross would die the spiritual death we deserve. The one who would suffer in our place as as an enemy of God that we might be no longer God's enemies but God's friends. See, Jesus did not come to give us the salvation we wanted. He came to give us the salvation we desperately needed. He came as a gentle king on a donkey to bring peace between us and God. That through his humble death on a cross provide the transformation we all need. So that whether you are financially struggling right now, whether you have chronic illness, whether you're struggling in hard relationships, 
if you know Jesus, you've been given the most critical and significant need, your, human, your humanness needs a restored relationship with your creator through Jesus. So can, you can live with hope that one day he will return. And in the book of Revelation, he's described as the slain lamb who purchased men for God. Who, as the, in the book of Revelation, as he comes in, is celebrated with palm branches because he is now victorious. He declares his victory over Satan and those who reject him. And what does it say in Revelation? There'll be no more war, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. And he, the humble, gentle, gentle king, with all power of the universe, will wipe every tear from our eye. Jesus did not come to give us the salvation we wanted. He came to give us the salvation we needed. And so what kind of saviour did you come to this church looking for this morning? Honestly. You may have come to this church for years. You've accepted Jesus' salvation, his death for your sins. But slowly you have made salvation more about what you want than it is about what you need. You, you simply, in some senses, have become a part of our transformation economy that we're all a part of. Coming to see Jesus to get that salvation you want. Saying to him, yeah, salvation from sins is good. Restored relationship with you is good. But what I really need right now is financial security. A happy marriage. Successful kids. Which seems to work for a while when things are going well, when you have all those things and God's blessing you. But... Then when things don't go well, when you, then, then, then you unravel. And you start to have this, initially, a quiet bitterness with God. You don't say, you keep up the appearances at church, but inside, you're quietly bitter with God. And then over time, that bitterness grows and grows until you're just kind of numb to Him. Or maybe you're not bitter with God for not giving you what you want, but because you have most of what you want. But the reality is you spend more time thinking about things like bulletproof coffee than you do the gift of being in relationship with Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with caring for your body. But if I get more animated about talking about coffee and its effect to transform my life than I do about Jesus and the cross and its ability to restore my relationship with the Creator, then what does it say about what I truly value? Or maybe you're a bit like me, where sometimes if you're really honest, you actually feel a little bit ashamed of telling people about your faith and the chance to know God. You're, you're at a dinner party and people actually get stuck, you know, at dinner party, everyone's proselytes, everyone's kind of evangelizing each other to their latest life hack, aren't they? You know, oh, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. Someone with Parkinson's, I'm, I cop it all the time. So people will come up to me all the time and say, have you tried this diet? Have you done this thing? Have you done this thing? Everyone's an evangelist, wherever they're excited about. When you're at those dinner parties and people are talking about the life, the life hacks, honestly, are you embarrassed to speak about Jesus? Does it feel like, oh, I can't talk about Jesus? It just seems so untransforming compared to bulletproof coffee. Why do we do that? 
think it's because we miss the glory of the cross. We miss the glory of the cross. That God, through the death of his very son, has made a way to know you. You might not just have deliverance from a part of life, but you might have life. Life to the full, Jesus says in John's Gospel. And so if that's where you're up to this morning, like me, we need to confess it to him. And we need to say to Jesus, Jesus, show us how glorious the cross is again. We need to ask his spirit. In Ephesians 1, it says that he might open the eyes of our heart. We need to ask, give us your spirit afresh that we might see the glory of the cross and the glory of being able to know you and be in relationship with you. That we might marvel at the salvation we have in Jesus. I got converted at 20 years old. I kind of grew up a kind of atheistic Roman Catholic um, but someone rocked up at church. I started going to church, didn't really believe in Jesus, but I still kept going. Someone rocked up at church with this book called No Compromise by uh, Melody Green. It was the life story of a man named Keith Green, who was a crazy hippie Christian person in, from the 70s. And I started reading it one night in my bed, and uh, it talked about, it just had this illustration about this man who takes his baby son to work. I'm not, I don't even know if that story's true. It doesn't really matter. Um, baby son to work, and he was a train bridge operator. And so his, his job was to move the train bridge to enable it passenger trains to go past or to move it like that so boats could go through. And so as he got to work that day, he took his baby son, and the first train is coming for the day, and the, and the bridge is like this. And so uh, he goes to move the bridge like this so the big passenger train can come through. And then as he goes to do that, he thought someone else was looking after his kid. And, but as he looks out, he sees the baby son on the tracks. And in that moment, he has to make a decision to see that thousands of people or the hundreds of people on this train either die for not, not moving the bridge or to see his baby son die. And so in agony, he makes that decision to move the bridge to allow the train to go through and see his son die. And as he's banging in the glass in agony, the people on the passenger train are going past and they just think he's waving at them and so they wave back oblivious to his pain. Now I was in bed as a 20-year-old, I read that and the Holy Spirit just went, whack! It was like God got his hand and he reached down into my life and says, Kurt, I want to know you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want you to give the greatest gift imaginable, and that is me. And I've done it through the most extraordinary gift imaginable, at the most expensive cost imaginable, and that is my very son for you. And in that moment, my life was transformed. Not just getting some coffee and, and having some life hack. But I went from darkness to life. I went from death to living. I had eternal life in Jesus. But it can be hard, can't it? it? You know, I knew that then. It was like a bright light right in my face. It was in vivid color what Jesus had done for me. But as you go along the Christian life, it starts to get dull sometimes. And so we need to keep coming back to him afresh again and again and saying, Jesus, show me the glory of the cross. Show me how spectacular it is that I can know you. 
But maybe today, you have actually never accepted Jesus' salvation to have peace with God. I want to give you a sad reality that you're living right now. And this might sound harsh, but you are on a treadmill going to nowhere. You think the next life hack is going to get you somewhere. It will get you somewhere, but you know what? You're going to need another one, and another one, and another one. And it might give you deliverance, mini deliverances within this life, but it's not going to give you life. Only in Jesus uh, do you actually have true life and have it to the full, and you'll have it for eternity with him. And so if you are on that treadmill this morning, please, this is your chance to jump off. I don't know if it's your first time, you've been for many times, but it's your chance to come and, and receive Jesus. And you'll have your life truly transformed. And so if you're in that place this morning, come and chat with me or, uh, or Pete or, or um, the other Pete. Uh, we'd love to pray with you and bless you by praying for you with Jesus. Friends, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing about the glory of the cross. Father God, we, we are so in awe of your son Jesus. We are sorry for the times when our vision for the cross has got small and almost black and white and lost the colour that it should have in our lives and in our hearts. We are sorry for the times when we get so enamoured with other life hacks and ways to transform our existence so that the, the gospel and what you've done in Christ just gets smaller and, and, and diminishes in value in our hearts. And we cry out to you now, every one of the people here I know will cry with me, show us the glory of the cross. Show us the value of the salvation we needed. Show us our King and Saviour, Jesus, who came to die in our place to restore us to relationship with you, to bring peace. Father, for those people here this morning who have not accepted the gift of Jesus, I pray that even right now, your Holy Spirit, who changes and challenges hearts, would be digging deep into their souls that they might come to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.